Hi, this is Robert Ford. You're listening to Strohs Across the Globe. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Strohs Across the Globe, the podcast presenting an international view on the Houston Astros, brought to you in association with Apollo Media. All Houston, all original. I'm your host, George Martin, who you may be familiar with as Astros Fans UK on Twitter. So yes, hot on the heels of the last episode, I have another truly special guest on the show, as I was fortunate enough to get the chance to speak with the Houston Astros lead radio commentator, Robert Ford. Now in his eighth season in the role, we discuss the extraordinary MLB 2020 season so far and this year's edition of the Astros, before moving on to discuss Ford's career journey as a baseball radio announcer, his position as being one of the very few black announcers in the sport, and what baseball can do to help diversify in this arena. Our conversation was ahead of the recent Astros D-back series, however the discussion remains relevant. On the subject of the 2020 Astros, it is safe to say that the opening three weeks of the season has presented a pretty alarming state of affairs for the team. Already behind a strong Oakland A's team in the West and facing a mountain of pitching injuries, losses and unavailability, this is as inopportune a time as any for the Astros' brightest hitting stars to lose all semblances of form and who we know they can be. However, that is the position we face at present. Were it a normal 162-game season, I would not say this would be too much cause for concern. However, over only 60 games and with a bullpen almost entirely constituting of rookies, time is very much not on our side. Our inability to either close out games or deliver clutch hitting is already hurting us and should it continue for much longer, we will probably need to reassess our targets for the season and look to make it into October via the expanded postseason which MLB have instigated for 2020. And let's not even get started on the artificial runner on second base in extra innings rule which is frankly the worst gimmick I've ever had the displeasure of experiencing in 20 years of following the sport. After the Robert Ford feature, make sure to keep on listening for the announcement of which Astros fan has won the latest Apollo mask giveaway, H-Town versus everyone. Best of luck to everyone who has entered as always. Thank you again for your positive feedback following episode three. Please do make sure to subscribe, rate and review at Strohs Across the Globe on whichever podcast platform you are listening. Positive reviews from you as my target audience mean the world to me and help me keep doing this for Astros fans, wherever you may be. Okay, it's time to listen to an illuminating and informative discussion with the driving force of the Astros radio broadcast coverage, Robert Ford. I really hope you enjoy it. Right, everybody, I am hugely privileged to have another fantastic guest on the show with me today as I'm joined by the next step on my journey across Astros broadcasters. It's the voice of Astros radio baseball himself, Mr. Robert Ford. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Bit of a strange, well, I say a bit of a strange year. This is the strangest of all years. How are you finding it? I guess, firstly, personally, how are you finding it? Well, I mean, obviously, it's been different. I'm used to being uh, very much in the thick of baseball season this time of year and, and traveling and, and all of that. And uh, it's obviously been a lot different. Haven't been traveling uh, with the ball club. No uh, mm. major league broadcasters are traveling with their teams for the most part. Uh, so doing games off of uh, t- off television screens has been different. Uh, you know, my family has been OK uh, for the most part. Uh, but um, but, yeah, it's been um, it's been unique. It's been different. But I mean, that you could say that about pretty much everything in, in 2020. Definitely. I think it's been an enormous shock to the system on every level and particularly within baseball. Now, with the season having finally started, I wondered what your thoughts were on that, because from the outside, it looked like 
MLB effectively enforced the season on the players after the whole standoff with the Players Association and the sort of tit-for-tat through social media, which went on and on forever and ever. And the players eventually, from the outside, looked as if they sort of caved. And we're seeing already only, what, a week and a half, maybe not even that into the season, so many different troubles. I mean, naturally, the first point would be the virus itself. What are your thoughts and concerns regarding the stories, obviously, and, and the result of the tests having decimated the Marlins and also the Cardinals and then obviously by extension the opponents that they were due to be facing? Yeah, I mean, obviously that's something that um, I think we all, I mean, if you paid attention to what's been going on, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody is surprised that there have been you know, some outbreaks among teams. Uh, it was just more of a question of how was that going to be handled? And yeah. uh, no one no one really knew. Uh, now we, we have an idea, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, the other question is how how many positive tests do you need to have? How many teams need to be affected for, for it to be the tipping point, if you will? Uh, and I think that's something we still don't really know because, I mean, clearly this was, you know, most of the Marlins uh, roster apparently tested positive and uh, that they're still, the season's still going on for them, albeit with a bit of a delay uh, mm. or with some postponements. Uh, so that's obviously been tricky to navigate that and figure that out. Uh, and uh, I think also, too, obviously, what, has been forgotten. And I mean, rightfully so. Obviously, the coronavirus is way more serious than anything athletically, uh, anything going on in sports. But uh, I think people forget short ramp ups uh, to begin the season. uh, That's that tends to lead to more injuries. I mean, as as much as people complain about how long spring training is, Mm. and I think a lot of those complaints are valid, it does serve a purpose. It allows us allows guys to to ease into the season. Uh, But when you have a three-week ramp-up, and when you think about it, uh, it was only like two or three days before summer camp started that a deal was agreed to, and yeah. that everybody knew, you know, they, when they'd be reporting. I mean, they had an idea before that, but didn't really know until just a few days prior to to the players having to report. Uh, so that's that that that's the other part of it, as opposed to spring training, where you you know months in advance wh- when you have to be there. So when when you have that. And you have the not knowing combined with the short ramp up. Uh, I think that that's what's led to a lot of the injuries, particularly with pitchers that that you're seeing. And then you throw on the fact that these were guys who started to get revved up in spring training, then had to stop. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure some of them didn't throw for a little while because we didn't know when things were going to resume. And then you have to start all over again. Uh, I think that's really tricky as well. Uh, so th- there have been a lot of you know, kind of unintended consequences. Some of it self-inflicted by the game, but a lot of it was stuff that really wasn't in their control. Mm. Uh, and that's that's just made things that's just made things really difficult. Uh, you know, you hope that they can get through the season and get through postseason uh, relatively unscathed, but uh, it's it's really hard to know if that's going to happen at this point. Definitely. That's one of my questions. I'm wondering just generally, I mean, there's talk of Major League Baseball obviously holding these bizarre seven inning doubleheaders and trying to fit in games every which way possible. What happens if there's a team which goes down during the postseason? You can't suddenly just delay the postseason by two weeks or maybe you can. I don't know. I mean, I thought the whole the whole modus operandi of what Major League Baseball was doing with the postseason was to try and avoid a second wave in November or something along those lines coming in and and basically wiping out the postseason entirely. I really, I'm curious to know what their plans are if this same situation that's happened in the last week was to happen in October. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Or even you think about, you know, let's say the last week or two of the regular season when Mm. teams are fighting for a playoff spot and then 
there's a team that has an outbreak and maybe they're a team that's not a team fighting for a postseason spot, but they're playing teams who are. Yeah. Uh, and so then how do you handle that? Do you, you know, do you just cancel those games and go off winning percentage and you have two teams competing against each other who haven't played close to the same number of games? I mean, I think these are all questions that I don't think anyone really knows the answer to. I, I mean, I dare say that I don't know that, you know, Rob Manfred and the baseball offices know the answer to that. I think they're, I think a lot of us are, are just kind of hoping that uh, things settle down and, and able to get through things uh, and, and able to kind of figure things out as you go. But uh, yeah, mm. there are a lot of questions that we just don't have answers to and probably won't until those scenarios present themselves. Yeah, I think there's a lot of guesswork that's been going on. I mean, I guess globally there's a lot of guesswork that's gone because the situation with coronavirus is so unusual and such an alien environment for everybody that we're trying to find our feet, whether it's people who are tackling the virus on the medical front or whether it's just people trying to live their daily lives and obviously baseball very much fits well within that spectrum of trying to work out what's happening. With the way that the season is being handled, my baseball-specific question would be, what were your thoughts on the rule changes? Obviously, as the Astros have seen in the last week, the extra innings artificial runner on second presents a lot of different situations, which I think it's safe to say there's been a mixed reaction to it from the fans. What are your thoughts? And obviously, some of them are born out of necessity, but are you a fan of these changes? Some, maybe some not. What's your opinion well, I'm a fan of doing anything that can kind of just get through this season. And mm. I mean, I think that's what the extra inning rule is there for, to try and limit the number of extra inning games and the strain on pitching and yeah. limit the amount of time teams are spending at the ballpark. Uh, I think that's what the, the doubleheader rule is is meant to do as well. Uh, I'm fine with those things as long as it's just for this year. But does it affect the legitimacy of the season? I mean, they're already playing a 60-game season. It's already... Uh, True. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, about a third of what a regular season would be. So, I mean, I think at this point, you know, kind of everything goes out the window uh, because mm. you're only playing 60 games maximum to determine uh, playoff positioning. So I think that when you think about it that way, then, I mean, every everything is on the table. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the extra inning rule, the doubleheader rule, I have no problem with it for a year. I'd have a problem with it if I thought, this was the way things were going to be moving yeah. forward. Uh, I think with the universal DH, uh, that's something that we all, I mean, if you've been paying attention, I think everybody in baseball saw that coming. It was only yeah, a matter definitely. of time mm-hmm. before there was a DH in both leagues. And that's the one change that has a very good chance of sticking beyond 2020. Um, and I, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. That doesn't really bother me too much. Uh, I grew up watching mostly National League Baseball. I was a big New York Mets fan as a kid growing mm-hmm. up in New York City. And I think wherever you grow up or whatever team you grew up rooting for, that's the team that, uh, you know, whatever style of play, whether it's DH or no DH, that's what you become accustomed to. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, when I was growing up, I thought, oh, yeah, it's all about the pitcher hitting. The DH is ridiculous, blah, 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 blah. But as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized that, it, you know, ultimately it's not that big of a deal. Uh, yeah, it changes some things strategically, but I, I don't really have a problem with a universal DH. Yeah, I think most Astros fans would agree with that because we're in the fairly, well, pretty unique position of having experienced not having a DH for so long in the National League and then making the switch. And I think we were all quite anti having the DH, but I think we've grown to appreciate it, respect it and understand how best to use it. And I find myself struggling sometimes in recent years to watch National League games just because when the pitcher comes up, it just sort of takes away from that moment when you have a rally that's starting and then they pitch around a dangerous hitter just to get to the pitcher and escape a jam with much more ease than 
may be the case otherwise. I like seeing a DH and that's definitely a rule which I would be quite happy to see stay. I'll tell you what, one of the changes which I haven't had as much opposition to in watching it that I thought I would was the three hitter minimum for pitchers. I think that's actually worked out quite interestingly in terms of as a viewing experience. I don't know if you would share that viewpoint, but I think it's actually been fine. I was worried that it was going to start influencing outcomes in a way which might be slightly unnatural from what we're used to, but I've quite enjoyed watching pitchers face more hitters than just a single guy. Well, I tell you what, uh, there I don't think there's any manager in baseball who agrees with you. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dusty Baker, yeah. Dusty Baker is among those who have said it's a terrible rule, and, mm. and I'm not I'm not a huge fan of it either. Uh, we haven't seen it impact yet, but I think we will. I mean, I just think about Game Seven of the World Series last year when Will yeah. Harris comes in, and it was pretty clear early on that he just didn't have it. Mm. Um, and you know, so you you have to have him face another guy just because of the three batter minimum. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Uh, that's that's one rule that I'm not crazy about. I don't know that they'll ever revert back to the old rule, uh, but I would be okay with seeing the the three batter minimum gone. When it was announced, I was vocally anti it on Twitter. So far, I haven't had too much issue. It maybe my opinion will change if it affects us in a big game. In terms of Moving on to the Astros themselves in 2020, it's been rather an up and down start to the season. We had the straightforward 3-1 series win against the Mariners. Then we had those games against the Dodgers, which I felt like we certainly should have won the second game. We didn't. And then we had that marathon series against the Angels. What are your thoughts on this team as it stands? I guess you can't really divorce it from the injury situation. But just generally, are you worried about this team? Or do you think they'll sort of get that swagger back a bit in terms of offensively? I know they've scored a lot of runs. But just in terms of the big guys delivering in the way that we used to. Yeah, I'm not too concerned about the offense. I mean, the fact that they're you know, one of the top scoring offenses in mm. baseball, even though you know, George Springer really didn't get going till the last few days. Altuve hasn't really gotten going yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jordan Alvarez isn't on the club yet. Uh, I think it's it's encouraging. Um, you know, Alex Bregman, we've seen signs, but he hasn't quite gotten it going yet. And yet the offense has still been productive. So that gives you an idea of the depth of the lineup and, and how good this lineup is. Uh, my concern is more with the pitching, which was already kind yeah. of thin going into the season. Uh, and then you add the injuries to Justin Verlander and Roberto Osuna and Chris Davinsky, uh, and Verlander and Osuna's injuries potentially uh, could linger for for quite some time and maybe for the rest of the 2020 season. Uh, that's that's very concerning. Uh, so I think that's the bigger issue. This is a team that's going to score runs, but they're going to need some good pitching. Uh, Ten rookies in the bullpen right now. Yeah. You're hoping some guys can step up, uh, but. You know, and then the trade deadline is at the end of the month on the 31st. Uh, I don't know what trades are going to look like because one of the things about this year is uh, it has to be a player. You can only trade players who are part of your 60 player pool. Mm. So if you have, you know, draft picks from last year, guys who are top prospects who aren't in that player pool, you cannot trade trade them or trade for them uh, at the deadline. So I'm, I don't know whether it's going to be or what it's going to look like in terms of just trying to upgrade the pitching via the trade deadline uh, or the waiver wire or what have you. So I think it's going to be really tricky. Um, There's just a lot we don't know about the pitching at this point, largely because there's a lot we don't know about a lot of these pitchers since a lot of them haven't pitched in the big leagues before or haven't pitched in the big leagues very much. So 
Uh, that's that's really where my concern lies is with the pitching. I'm not too concerned about the offense. I agree. I think it's been a positive to see amongst the rookies, guys like Blake Taylor come out and absolutely hit the ground running. He's looked nailed so far. I know Bilak had a great outing as well. And obviously Christian Javier with that spectacular start against the Dodgers as well. I think there are lots of bright spots for us to hold on to. But yeah, in terms of the season progressing and particularly once it gets down to the, the real nitty gritty and potentially the postseason, yeah, it doesn't fill you with confidence if you're in a tight ball game and having to rely on you know sheer inexperience and that's not meant as a slight towards any of them because they look like an extremely talented bunch of guys and I look forward to seeing what they can do but I do worry that we're going to struggle at times with that particularly with the news coming out about as soon as injury as it stands at the moment I know that Dusty Baker's not confirmed that he'll need Tommy John surgery yet but it sounds like from the MRI situation that it isn't looking positive who do you see being the closer in his absence? Well, I mean, it'll be Ryan Presley. Uh, so, and I mean, I mean that there's that inspires confidence. But obviously, when you lose your closer, that means everybody has to move move yeah. down one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Presley's so good in the eighth inning, uh, and he'll be fine as closer. But it's how do you get to Ryan Presley, and that's the big question. You know, Blake Taylor, you mentioned he's been very good, uh, but we need to see if some other guys kind of step up uh, and 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 prove themselves. But, uh, but yeah, I'm not too worried about the closer spot with Presley. I'm more worried about what that means for the rest of the bullpen. I guess the pressure is, well, not off, but it's slightly less due to the fact that there is the expanded postseason. So if we did hit a bit of a rut in the season and a bit of a slump where we're struggling, there is that kind of, not that we should be looking at the backdoor option into October, but I think that having that there is not necessarily the worst thing considering the plethora of pitching injuries that we are facing at the moment. I certainly hope that the news regarding Osuna isn't as bad as it looks. On the offense side, it was great to see Kyle Tucker have that game against the Angels where hopefully he can use that as a springboard to kind of move on to bigger and more consistent offensive production. You know, I like what I see from the guy, but I sometimes feel as an outsider that it looks like he's potentially lacking in confidence a little bit. So I'd love to see him get that little spark to drive him to the next level. What do you see from, from him the rest of this year? Well, I think I think it's helped Kyle Tucker that he doesn't have to be the guy in this lineup, mm. but there's several guys uh, who can who can produce. So he doesn't have to feel like he has to, to kind of carry the weight of the team on his shoulders. So I think that'll help him. Um, but I've been encouraged. You know, 2018, when he came up and basically got a month to play, to show that he belonged in the big leagues and he fell flat on his face. That was discouraging. But then Mm. he came back last year, last month of the season, and you don't want to take too much out of uh, what a player does in September. Uh, But very encouraged. He looked a lot better. You you felt like, okay, this, the talent is there. We're seeing it kind of, kind of rise to the top here. Uh, So that's very encouraging. But I think that, um, you know, he still like any young player has a, has a lot to learn, but I think he's, he's in pretty good shape. And I think, he has a chance to be a, a really productive uh, ball player for the Astros. Really hope so. I guess we, if you add Jordan Alvarez coming back, hopefully fit and firing, that would be a massive shot in the arm for the offense going through August and September in this rather strange season. And also, and one last thing, just yeah, if, if we can get Jose Okidi back as well, it's anywhere near the form that he was in last year in his debut year. I think then again, that would bolster the pitching in a way which we desperately need. Moving on from the Astros, I wanted to talk a little bit about your career and uh, get a little bit of an insight into your motivations as an announcer your story and also kind of moving into how major league baseball and minor league baseball can diversify what is an alarmingly white workforce i was looking to see if we could start when did you know that you first know that you wanted to be an announcer how old were you 
Well, um, I was I was really in in so it's so it's kind of a funny story. I mean, when I when I when did I know I wanted to do play by play? I was in college by then. Uh, but, you know, the seeds were really sown well before that, you know, growing up, I was always a big baseball fan. I was a big sports fan, but baseball was always number one for me. Um, I grew up watching games uh, with my dad. Uh, you know, we were both big Mets fans. And yeah. in addition to talking about the games, we would also talk about the broadcasters and why we like certain broadcasters, why we didn't like other broadcasters. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but I was preparing for a career in play by play. Uh, and we always knew, you know, a lot of people watch watch sporting events and they they never know who the broadcasters are. Uh, but we always knew. And if it was somebody who was doing a game and we didn't know who it was, we wanted to find out who it was uh, because either, you know, be like, who is this guy? This guy's really mm. good. Or who is this guy? This guy's not very good. Uh, yeah. So that, you know, the seeds were, were kind of sown then, you know, without realizing it. And then when I got into high school, I was encouraged to I was told I was a really good writer by one of my one of my teachers in, in 10th grade. And uh, she encouraged me to write for the high school paper uh, because she said a lot of those kids don't know how to write, but you do. Um, and so I took her up on her advice and my high school paper had a sports section uh, that covered the sports teams at my high school, Bronx High School of Science in the Bronx, New York. And so, yeah, I just started writing for my high school paper covering the, the sports teams at my school um, when I started looking at colleges, I realized I wanted to do journalism, but broadcast journalism seemed more interesting to me than print journalism did. Uh, I always liked to speak. I, you know, I always enjoyed using my voice. Um, mm. So I, when I got to college, I thought uh, I wanted to be a sports anchor on television uh, or a sports reporter. And then probably midway through my sophomore year of college was when I realized that play-by-play -play was really what I wanted to do. How did you make that move? When you decided that you wanted to pursue play-by-play -play as a career path, what was the first step that you took? I mean, how do you kind of start that path once people are on it? Yep, I understand that you're kind of trying to get your voice out there, but how do you begin that? Yeah, and I mean, everybody's answer to this question will be different, at least to a certain extent. I went to Syracuse University mm -hmm. in upstate New York. It's about five hours from New York City. Uh, and it's known for producing a lot of uh, the, the communication school. There is one of the best in, in the United States. And it's known for producing lots of uh, broadcasters, not just in sports, but certainly there have been a lot of uh, sports play by play guys. You think of uh, Bob Costas, you think of Mike Tirico, who's pretty big doing football and, and golf and, and all other sports and does the Olympics for NBC now. Uh, you know, these are all, these, you know, those are just a couple of guys. Marv Albert. Todd, Todd Callis went there, didn't he, as well? Todd Callis went there. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Todd Callis went there with Mike Tirico, and they were roommates at one point uh, at Syracuse. Mm. Um, so there, there have been quite a few play-by-play -play guys who've who've come out of there. Marv Albert, who did the NBA nationally for years and still does some NBA games on TNT on cable uh, in the U.S. Uh, and did New York Knicks games when I was a kid, and I grew up a Knicks fan Uh so there have been quite a few guys who have come out of Syracuse. Um, so it's kind of it's a place where a lot of kids go who want to do play by play, who want to be the next Bob Costas or Mike Tirico or what have you. Uh, so the great thing about being there is there are a lot of resources. There were three campus radio stations. Um, I was able to get on the air of one of them doing sports updates uh, on in the mornings. Uh, I was able to get some work uh, for some radio stations in town. I did, there was a minor league hockey team in Syracuse. I worked on their radio broadcast, didn't do play by play, but I did some reporting and stuff uh, on their radio broadcast. Uh, so basically I was just trying to piece it together and just trying to figure out uh, how to get experience and get my foot in the door. I got to do some high school football my senior year 
at Syracuse for a local radio station. Um, I got to do some, you know, I would sit in the stands at the Carrier Dome, which is where Syracuse plays mm-hmm. their basketball and football games. Uh, and I would do play-by-play into a recorder, just getting practice. I would sit at minor league baseball games. because There's a minor league baseball team in Syracuse, New York. I would sit at their games and do play-by-play into a tape recorder and try and get people to listen to it and tell me what they, they thought. Uh, so, yeah, it was just a lot of just trying to figure it out. Um, and just trying to find ways to get reps and to get experience and to get better. How do you analyze your performance as a, an aspiring announcer? Because that's something which fascinates me. I'd love to know what your method was. It's very tricky because, um, number one, a lot of it is subjective. Uh, yeah. One person can hear it and think, okay, this guy has some ability. I really like this guy. Somebody else can hear it and think this person's terrible. Although there are certainly there, – there definitely are things that have to be there for any broadcast. Uh, and I mean, you know, one of them, I mean, it's, it's entertainment business. You want to be entertaining, but also still be yourself. Mm. Uh, you also want, you know, on radio, you want to be descriptive and let people know what's going on since they can't see it. Uh, so that's, that's a big part of it as well. Uh, and that's, that's one of the hardest things to do in this business is to get, uh, to get usable feedback because you have a lot of people who will tell you you're great. You'll have a lot of people who will tell you you're terrible, but the fact of the matter is the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And a lot of it is also preference as well. Mm. Who were your inspirations when you were embarking on that path? Who were your major kind of heroes in that regard? In terms of getting feedback or just in terms of of being a play-by-play announcer? I'm presuming that your goal was always to do it on the radio rather than television. Is that correct? That's where I wanted to start. Um, You know, I knew I wanted to do baseball on radio. Uh, That was always something that appealed to me. And also, I mean, I knew I'd have to start in the minor leagues and those are all radio jobs. There aren't too many TV jobs in the minor leagues. So there was there was that, Um, you know, TV always interested me. You know, I've gotten to do some college basketball on television for ESPN and I do enjoy that. It's it's a it's a much different, uh, obviously. And I did a lot of college basketball on radio uh, over the years as well. And I enjoy how different both sports are Mm. to to call on radio or TV because Basketball, obviously, is much more fast-paced, and you don't have as much time to weave stories into it, whereas baseball, you you have all the time in the world to yeah. mention stories in between the action and things like that. So, I, you know, I um, radio was always number one for me. It still is. For baseball, I really enjoy the intimacy of it. I mean, I remember growing up listening to Mets games. Bob Murphy and Gary Cohen were the Mets radio broadcasters when I was growing up. Uh, Bob Murphy has since passed away. Gary Cohen does Mets games now on television. Um, and, uh, you know, I always love the fact that no matter what was going on, I could turn on the radio and I would hear those two voices, whether the team was at Shea stadium, whether they were in Cincinnati, whether they were in LA, whether it was hot, whether it was cold, whether it was May, whether it was August, Mm. uh, just that constant presence. Uh, and you get that on TV as well. It's just not quite the same because you can see everything. Whereas on radio, it's just such a much more intimate medium. Because if I don't tell you it's a ground ball to second base, you have no idea. Um, so you're you're really trusting me to be your eyes and ears for what's going on. Um, and so I think that's why that it becomes a much more intimate level of connection with the listeners than than television can be sometimes. 
Definitely. In terms of your career, you started off, I think you spent, is that seven years doing the minors slash Indian League Baseball, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, so you, you went um, just running through your career, you started off with the Yakima Bears, is that correct? And then, um, yeah, the, the, the Yakima Bears, believe me, it Yakima, took me a long time to learn how to pronounce it correctly too, <laughs> and, I'm from, and, I'm, and I'm from this country, so don't feel bad. Yeah, uh, Yakima Bears, and then the Kalamazoo Kings, and the Binghamton Mets. What's it like being a minor league play-by-play announcer? Because I imagine it's a world away from what you get in the majors yeah in some ways it's it's very different but in some ways it's very similar i think where it's different obviously uh the exposure is different uh Mm. the um you know the crowds are different obviously much smaller crowds uh the you know and you you really get to know the players and the coaching staff more because there aren't that many people around you don't have three four five six beat writers covering a team um it's basically the broad the radio broadcaster the beat writer for the local paper, you you know, doesn't travel and cover the team. They're only there for home games. So on the road, it's it's basically just the broadcast. Uh, so you get to really know the coaching staff and the players. And at that point, you know, I mean, I was in the minor leagues. My first year in the minor leagues, I was 23. Um, so I was in the minor leagues through, uh, you know, my early to mid 20s mm-hmm. and into my late 20s. And I was around the same age as the players back then. Um, so, you know, you have much more in common with those guys. I wasn't necessarily, you know, hanging out with them every day, but you know, you're, you're able to form a bond with those guys in part because you're around the same age. Um, and you know, the pay is not as good. Uh, the conditions aren't as good. You're traveling by bus rather than by plane. Uh, and, and you're, you're in much smaller cities. Uh, so, you know, those are the things that are different. The things that are the same is it's baseball. Uh, yeah. You know, the level of play obviously isn't quite the same as it is at the big league level, uh, but it's still about describing what you see and painting a picture uh, and conveying what you're seeing to the people who are listening on their radios or on the Internet or wherever the case may be. Uh, so that part doesn't really change. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's important to remember that, too, because I think a lot of times broadcasters will get to the major leagues or they think in order to get to the major leagues, they have to do something different. Um, yeah. And you see that with players, too. Right. They, they get to the big yep, leagues yep. and feel like they have to do something different because they're in the big leagues. But a lot of it is, I mean, you got here for a reason. Um, so, you know, you, you keep keep doing what you've been doing. Uh, and I think that's an important thing to remember is that it's it's still baseball. Um, and obviously, at the big league level, there are more people paying attention. Uh, the stadiums are bigger. Uh, there are more people covering the team. Uh, but at the at the end of the day, the, the fundamental aspects of your job are still the same. Another big difference, too, is a lot of times minor league broadcasters, and that's certainly true for me, you wear multiple hats. I mm. also did media relations most of the years that I was in the minor leagues. So I had to set up press credentials for people and, you know, set up interviews and things like that. Uh, so and I would have to write the daily game notes that were distributed to the media uh, before every game. Uh, wow. So all those things that you're doing distract from preparing for the broadcast. And I mean, I still prepare for the broadcast, obviously, mm. but uh, it, it does it does change uh, what you do. Whereas when you get to the major leagues, everybody's a specialist. If you're doing game notes, media relations, that's all you're doing. If you're doing play-by-play, that's all you're doing. You know, you don't, you don't have to do sales like a lot of minor league broadcasters do. Uh, so that's also the big difference is that 
you can focus just on play-by-play and on broadcasting and you don't have to worry about any other responsibilities. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast that you were on earlier this year. I think it was with Jake Kaplan, I think, and a couple of others. Yes. And you mentioned about enjoying the journey. And I really like that as a quote, because I think that quite often, not just in baseball, but I think generally in life, we don't stop to think about how much we put into when we're working hard towards a goal. And I think that's a really positive way to approach what could be a fairly daunting task to try and carve your way into that profession. And I like that. I think that's a really upbeat way to look at that. And it brings me to my next point. I know you did uh, radio pre and post game stuff for the Royals, but I'm going to go to what I think was February 13th, 2013. And you got the call from the Houston Astros to say, we'd like you to be our lead radio play-by-play announcer. How did you feel when you had that news? Well, um, and it actually happened before February 13th. February 13th was the press conference Mm. to introduce us. Uh, Well, it wasn't really a press conference, but they they introduced us and, you know, revealed that we were, me and myself and Steve Sparks were going to be the radio broadcast team for the Astros. Uh, I mean, it was a great day. You know, I had initially interviewed for the Astros December 10th, uh, 2012. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been to Houston. It was only the second time I'd ever been to Texas. Um, and it was a nerve wracking day. I, it was the first time I'd ever interviewed with a major league team uh, for anything. And um, I didn't really know what to make of it. And then in January, they let me know. And they got back to me, let me know I was a finalist. And, you know, things kind of moved from there. But through a lot of the process, I didn't tell very many people. Like, I didn't tell my parents until after uh, the Astros let me know that they were going to give me a contract and they were going to hire me. And I didn't want to tell too many people because I didn't want to get their hopes up and disappoint them. And in many ways, I didn't want to tell too many people because I didn't want to get my hopes up and get disappointed. Uh, That's definitely so enough, I really yeah. kept it pretty close to the vest. Um, and a lot of people didn't know until uh, February 13th, 2013, when the team officially announced it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a great day, obviously. Uh, it's something that I had been working for for a long time. And I also knew that there are a lot of really good broadcasters who never get a chance to call major league games through mm-hmm. no fault of their own. There are only a handful of these jobs and people tend to stay in them for a very long time. Uh, so you need to be good. You need to be talented. Uh, you also probably need a little bit of luck and you need to be in the right place at the right time. Um, so I was aware of all of that and I, I've never lost sight of that. And I still haven't lost sight of that. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, there were a lot of emotions um, I was also very excited. Um, you know, I knew the Astros weren't going to be very good that year, uh, but it was Major League Baseball and I was going to get to call 162 games of Major League Baseball. And that, I mean, that's that's what I had wanted to do for a very long time. Yeah, that 2013 season was uh, a real horror show from the team, unfortunately. And also had, a, I think it was the collapse of Comcast Sportsnet in Houston in the same year as well. So it was a fairly tumultuous year from the uh, perspective of, of Yeah, Comcast, Astros, Comcast yeah. started that year. Comcast Sportnet Houston started mm. that year. And it was 14 when it kind of collapsed the next oh, year. Oh, right, right. But yeah, right, right. I mean, yeah, people couldn't get it, get the channel. I could get the channel where I live. That didn't do me much good because I was at all the games. But uh yeah, it's really a shame the way that worked out. Moving on slightly to an even more important subject, when you got that position, you became one of what is, I would say, almost shameful. Well, yeah, a pitifully small percentage of announcers being a person of colour. What are your thoughts on why there are so few and what can be done to change that? Cause I was reading an article which you shared on Twitter, The Future of the Black Play-by-Play Announcer by Ryan Curtis in The Ring, and it was talking about Marcus Grant's story in Class A with the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Visalia Oaks? Um, but, but yeah, Visalia, Visalia. Yeah, got there. But, um, so yeah, I, I wanted to know, what are your thoughts on 
what can be done and what's it like being in that position. In a way, it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure as well. I have absolute admiration for everything you do. I love your work. And thank you. Uh, I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on, particularly at this moment in time where we obviously face a hugely important moment societally with regards to the question of race, not just in America, but also globally. I can very much assure you it's a topic which remains, unfortunately, at the forefront of things here as well. What are your thoughts on the state of play for black play-by-play announcers and the future? Well, I think that, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things. I mean, obviously, um, there, you know, the, the representation of uh, black people and people of color is, is rather low in a lot of different industries. Mm. Uh, broadcasting, you know, play-by-play broadcasting happens to be one of them. Uh, so I think, I think it starts with society. Um, I think there are a number of factors. Uh, I think, you know, it becomes self-perpetuating because you don't see others who look like you in certain roles. So you assume, even if it's subconscious, that this isn't something that's for you. Uh, Mm. So I think there's a lot of that, uh, which is why I think we need to do a better job of cultivating uh, broadcasters of color, cultivating female broadcasters as well. um, Because I think the future of baseball depends on it because you know, the more people feel like they're represented, whether it be on the field or in the broadcast booth or in the front office, the more people who feel like they're represented, the more people are actually going to be interested in following baseball and working in baseball and playing baseball. Uh, so I think it's very important. I mean, if everybody who is broadcasting baseball or if everybody who is working in a baseball front office is a, is a white male, well, it just becomes self-perpetuating. But if it's a little bit more diverse, then, you know, that changes things a little bit. So I think that's very important uh, for the future of the game and to continue to grow the game, uh, to let people from all walks of life, people of all genders, of all ethnicities know that this is a game that that can be for them. I think another issue that you have, you know, you mentioned my seven years in the minors. You Mm. don't get paid a lot in the minors. Um, And I know in the United States, the generational wealth for black families is one-tenth the generational wealth of white families. There have actually been studies that have shown that well-off black families have less generational wealth than middle-class white families. Um, And what that means is you're less likely to be able to pursue your passions uh, as a young person because you're not going to have that safety net. You're less likely to have that safety net Mm. as a person of color. I mean, because there were times when my family, my parents had to you know, give me money to, you know, for car repairs or for what what have you, various things that come up. Um, and so I think if I hadn't had that support, it would have been really hard for me to stay in the minor leagues and continue on the path of, of broadcasting. Uh, but because I had that support, it made it a lot easier. P- uh, people of color are less likely to have that support. Uh, so I think that's a that's a big issue as well. Um, I mean, I, there there's so many different things, but uh, I think those are those are just a, a couple of things that 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 come to mind. Very much echo that point. I think I saw similar in that article you shared. What is owed by Nicole Hannah Jones in the New York Times, and it was well to say startling is is a, yeah. a massive understatement. It was so eye opening, and yeah, I don't want to delve too deeply into the sort of political side of things. 
on this show but yeah put frankly it needs changing and that goes across society not just obviously within baseball in terms of within the sport have you ever i'm not asking you to go through specific incidents but have you ever experienced outright racial abuse through your time in the minors and in the majors have you ever come across something which is just completely out of order or is, there, um, is that something not, not so not much really not so much outright i think it's a lot of what's known as microaggressions yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. People People saying things like, oh, you don't sound like you're from the Bronx or you don't sound black or, you know, I'm surprised you're calling baseball games, uh, things like that. So it was more more microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, nothing necessarily overt. I don't think being a person of color has necessarily impacted my career positively or negatively. Um, mm. but uh, but yeah it's more more the microaggressions what advice would you have for aspiring play-by-play announcers of color well I think it's um, you want to learn whatever you can learn um, you want to continue to get better um, I think uh, you have to be willing to uh, be uncomfortable go places you may not go otherwise I think this is true for any broadcaster go yeah. places you may not be willing to go get out of your comfort zone be willing to buy a car and drive cross-country from New York City to Yakima Washington a place you've never been to call baseball games. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think getting just getting as many reps as you can and getting as many people to listen to your work. Definitely. I read a stat saying that you were only the second African-American broadcaster to call a play-by-play for, during a World Series clinching game after right. Bill White in 1978. And whilst from a personal point of view, that's great. It's shocking that that is, is such, it's an extraordinarily low number. And I think that must change. Thank you so much for joining me today, Robert. I really appreciate your time. Hopefully, later on in the season, we maybe can catch up again. And uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed hearing on Astros Across the Globe. If um, you've got a message for the global fans of the Astros, what would you say? Keep the faith. Keep the faith and, and go Astros. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. All right. Good talking with Thanks, you. Thanks, Robert. There you have it. I must say, I really enjoyed that discussion with Robert Ford. Unfortunately, we had to end things a little more swiftly than planned as he had an interview with Dusty Baker lined up. However, I will absolutely be looking to get Robert on strolls across the globe again towards the back end of this mini-season in the latter part of September. I feel like Robert Ford is a real unsung hero in the broadcasting arena, someone who doesn't necessarily get nearly the plaudits he should for the excellent job he does, a true professional. I don't know about all of you listening, but I am so fascinated by the journeys, backgrounds and origin stories, if you like of the Astros television and radio broadcasting teams. Hearing Robert Ford talk about his journalistic methodology and what life involves as a radio play-by-play announcer in the minor leagues, taking on additional tasks in a way that simply doesn't happen at the major league level was really interesting and something I had never previously considered. Additionally, I was greatly interested to hear Robert's viewpoints on what baseball needs to do to get more people of colour into its commentary booths, both in the minors and in the majors. I couldn't agree with him more. As we had to end it fairly sharply, I didn't get the chance to ask his social media details and you can follow him on Twitter at RAFord3 and on Instagram also as RAFord3, so make sure you get following him. Right, it's the time for the draw to see who has won the Apollo H-Town vs. Everyone mask prize. As ever, I've written down the Twitter handles of everyone who entered and assigned each one of you with a number. This competition was open again globally, so the winner could be from anywhere in the world. Over I head to Google's random number generator with the number of total entrants set as a maximum. And here we go. And the winner is number three, at Steve Somewhere. is a UK Astros fan. Many congratulations. I will send you a DM so you can get that Apollo H-Town vs. Everyone mask sent on its way to you. That's all from me. Please make sure you follow me on Twitter at Astros Fans UK and on Instagram as UK Astros Fans. I love to interact with all Astros fans across the globe. It's kind of in the name, hey? You can also email me. That is AstrosFansUK at gmail.com. 
Once again, do not forget to follow Apollo Media over in Houston. That's at Apollo HOU on Twitter and Apollo HOU on Instagram. All Houston, all original. Get yourself over to their merch store ASAP. You will not be disappointed. And if you do make a purchase, then please make sure you use the code ASTROS-UK to get yourself a little discount on what you buy. Time for me to sign off from episode four. A massive thank you for listening to Strohs Across the Globe. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I do what I do for you guys and girls, and it's really important to me that you let me know if I'm providing the kind of content you enjoy. I look forward to having you all with me again for the next episode. Wherever you are, across the globe, let's go Strohs.